The Spectator combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, and get a £20 Amazon gift voucher absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk slash summer. Hello and welcome to Marshall Matters with me, Winston Marshall for The Spectator in London. Today I have the pleasure of being joined by Dr. Yoram Hazoni, who is the author of the books The Virtue of Nationalism, The Jewish State, The Struggle for Israel's Soul, and his most recent book, Conservatism, A Rediscovery, amongst other books. And Dr. Hazoni is also the chairman of the Edmund Burke Foundation, president of the Herzl Institute, and leader of the National Conservative movement, which only last month enjoyed its conference and uh, around the corner here in, in, in Westminster in London. And there was a, a little pushback all against that in the, in the media and press and, and it seemed to annoy probably people you'd consider all the right people to, to annoy. But anyway, I look forward to getting into that. But Dr. Hazoni, thank you so much for speaking with me today. My pleasure. Thank you for making the time for me. Oh, on the contrary, thank you for making the time to come in. And uh, I wondered if we could start with some perhaps semantics or some basic questions. And your most recent book, Conservatism, A Rediscovery, really goes, gets into the political philosophy of, of conservatism. And there's some things I don't fully grasp, but I wondered maybe if I could ask a very simple question. What is conservatism? Well, conservatism is a, is a political standpoint uh, that sees the the center of politics as being the the conservation and transmission and strengthening of uh, the nation through time over generations and i think it's uh, it's it's appropriate today to contrast it with liberalism because the the two things have been somewhat confused uh, a liberal is someone who begins in a different place begins with saying look the heart of politics is the uh, the freedom and equality of the individual. And uh, the, 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 the role of government and the role of politics is, is to secure individual liberties and, and equalities. Now, of course, uh, it's possible for a conservative, and mo most conservatives are concerned, among other things, with, with individual liberty. But because conservatism begins with, uh, with, it begins with the collective, it begins with the nation, and says, what have we inherited? What are our traditions? What are our interests? Uh, the interests of our nation, what, what do we need to do in order to make it stronger? That means that a conservative is, is always going to be balancing and trading off in, in areas in which liberals simply, you know, very often simply assert, well, look, individual liberty is at stake here and therefore we already have our answer. Mm -hmm. Perhaps going into um, more deeper into that, in, in your book you describe it as, uh, let's say, uh, conservative nationalism as as a unity of different tribes in uh, making a pact together to, to to work cohesively. What I've struggled a little bit is to separate where's the role of the individual within that makeup because in in a society of different tribes working together, and in well, let me put it another way. In the first half of the book, I, I couldn't help but think, where's the role for the individual in this collection of the tribe? And in the second half of the book, I felt that your definition of conservatism seemed to incorporate liberalism. It seemed to incorporate the values of John Stuart Mill, John Locke, the freedom of, of the individual. So I couldn't quite uh, 
couldn't quite separate conservatism and liberalism in my head. Maybe you can clarify that for sure. me. Sure. Well, look, it's very important to uh, to recognize that conservatism is going to be different from one one nation, one national tradition to another. Whatever is uh, an appropriate conservatism in Britain is not is it's simply not going to be the same as an appropriate conservatism in uh, in India or, or 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 in Russia or 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 somewhere else. In this, conservatism is very different from both liberalism and Marxism, which are universalist theories and claim to give you the answer about what every country in the world at all times in history should should be like. Uh, so so that uh, it's it's certainly the case that an Anglo-American conservatism is going to include uh, uh, strong strong elements of uh, uh, of ind- individual liberty. Look, if you if if you take pick up in praise of the laws of England by the 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 great common lawyer and and jurist and political theorist John Fortescue. This is a book that was written in 1470. It was written in the Middle Ages. And you pick up the book and uh, there's, there's a nice Cambridge edition. It's very easy to read. They corrected the spelling. You pick up this book and the first thing that Fortescue starts to tell you about is uh, the separation of powers and the the checks and balances between uh, the, the, the king and the parliament and uh, the relationship between uh, private property and individual liberty. And he, answer, he, he says, why is it that all across Europe people say that in England we're the freest, we're the freest people in Europe? And he starts to explain how the common law constructs individual liberty, for example, by uh, f- forbidding the king to, uh, to enter a property without the permission. Even, even you know, a, a, farm, a, a farmer's home is not, is not something the king is allowed to enter without his permission, much less to take something. All right, and and by the way, many of these elements that you know that we find already in uh, medieval English political tradition, ma- many of them go go all the way back to the Bible, and are often explicitly connected to the Bible. So the the most important parts of uh, liberalism certainly do do exist within the common law tradition, within the conservative tradition uh, in Britain and in America. However, w- we can see the clear clash. In the the triumph over the after the fall of the Berlin Wall for thirty years, international liberal internationalism became kind of the uh, the dominant ideology of you know of of both Labour and Tories, both uh, Democrats and Republicans, and this was mostly tr- true across Europe. And what you see in this liberal internationalism is a liberalism unbound from any kind of conservatism. Liberalism in uh, in almost, you could say, in, in kind of a, a pure sense in which the, the, the freedom of the individual to establish a, co- a corporation, to, uh, to take, take his or her company and you know, move the factories uh, to China w- without any concern for uh, what effect that has on, on, on the workers in Britain or in America. We, we got to see 30 years of pure liberalism. And uh, I, I think the, the Brexit and, uh, and the Trump movement and, uh, in general, the, the, the return of a, a nation-centered conservatism is a, a clear rejection of the idea that you can simply take the freedom of the individual and turn that into everything in politics. Can, can we, sorry, to, I don't want to stall you, in, but just back to definitions, because you, you talked there about pure liberalism and also 
the liberal worldview, and 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 you mentioned it was Marxist worldview, which is easier to sort of understand. It's that there's different classes of people. There's an oppressor and an oppressed, and there's a power dynamic between them. But where what is the liberal worldview? How would you define that? Um, let's let's take John Locke. He's kind of accepted as kind of the archetype of of liberalism. The the axioms in the second treaties of government, the premises on which he explicitly bases all of his political theory. Number one, all human beings are perfectly free and perfectly equal. That that's the cornerstone. Number two, moral obligation is moral and pol political obligation only comes into existence where you've consented. In other words, if 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 I didn't agree to uh, to be bound by by your claims in one way or another, if I didn't agree to it, then then I'm not bound. I don't have any obligations. And number three, uh, he says the purpose of government is only to pursue and establish uh, these um, qualities and liberties, which, which which all rational people he believes will will come to that. Uh, this is an extremely simplistic and shallow, in my view, form of thinking about politics. And as uh, Lockean liberalism, as it's gained traction, I mean, it it, it didn't really emerge victorious as kind of like the ultimate answer to all questions in politics until after World War II. But as this liberalism has advanced over the, 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 the last couple of hundred years, the job of conservatives has been to attempt somehow to prevent these extremely abstract concepts of the perfectly free and perfectly equal individual from taking over every aspect of society. So let's take an example. In, in a traditional, any kind of traditional conservative politics would, would recognize that there are different nations and they have different laws and the, 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 the national government has a responsibility to maintain in general the, the good and the interests of the people who the government represents. And so a question like, what right do hundreds of thousands of foreigners have to enter the country this year? For for a conservative, it's obvious that it, it depends on whether having hundreds of thousands of foreigners entering the country is going to benefit and strengthen your people economically, but also also in terms of culture and 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 the the cohesion of the of the society. That that that's obvious to to conservatives, but a liberal says, well, hold on a second. We believe that all individuals are perfectly free and perfectly equal. So what right do I, as let's say an Englishman, what right do I have to, to tell someone who's coming from Nigeria or, or from, from uh, Poland or anywhere else, no, you're not allowed to enter this country. You think it'll be better for you, but I'm going to stop you. And I, I, I think that you see this, you see this easily, this, this uh, hesitation among uh, British elites, American elites, Certainly in the European Union, where eliminating borders is kind of like an explicit aim of the entire EU enterprise, what's what's going on here? What's going on here is fundamentally uh, the liberal assumption that a foreigner is is just as good as you are, and therefore you you have no right to prevent them from entering the country. Um, so I I think that's a very very clear point on which liberals are on one side and conservatives are on another. Not necessarily just as good, because I think conservatives would say an immigrant is just as good. It's, it's not a moral judgment right as much as saying that they, are, they have an equal right to 
the land. Is that what you mean? Sure, but but you know, a, a, a conservative uh, who who sees someone crossing the border illegally will say, "Look, you're a criminal. You've you violated the laws of this country." And I think quite a few liberals at this point they're uneasy with that. You know, what, what right do we have? To you know, if if the laws are unjust, and maybe it's just unjust to tell all these people they're not allowed to enter the country. I mean, this is a very, very fundamental question of of whether there is such a thing as a nation, whether it exists in history, whether people belonging to one nation actually should treat one another in in a different way from the way that they treat people from 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 other nations. This is this is the heart of politics today. With conservatism. In, in contrast to that definition of liberalism, it it is it, it is acknowledges that we are all connected and in relationship with each other from when we are born into families, greater communities and and tribes. As you say, is there a danger that without that liberal offset, it can go too far? The obvious example being that, let's say, nineteen thirties Germany. We all know how that ended. There was a union of the different tribes, except one tribe was not just excluded, but we know how we know how the, the story there. And and so the conservatism needs that liberal dialectic to keep it from going too far in, in another direction. I think you're right. Let let me just say something about some something about nineteen thirties Germany, because that example is it looms so large in the public imagination. It is certainly it's certainly true that Hitler if you read Mein Kampf, and I do not recommend reading Mein Kampf, but but if you read it, you'll see that that Hitler never says my ideology is biological imperialism. My he does say that Germany should be the uh, lord of all the earth and the mistress of the globe. So I mean, he, he expresses the desire for Germany to, to take over the entire world, but he calls that nationalism, and so we have a we have a semantic. We have a semantic problem. His is a jingoistic nationalism. Well, he, he he takes a word that had previously, previously, and I in many parts of the world, even today, the word nationalism. I'm I'm from Israel. And I'm going in a few weeks to India. In places like India and Israel, the the word nationalism is a positive word. It's not a negative word. When it's used as a positive term, most decent people use the term to mean a world of independent nations. It's a it's a principle. It's not a utopia necessarily, but nationalism is a is a principle that says that in general, we're better off if the world is governed as uh, many independent nations rather than uh, one nation attempting to create a, uh, a a world empire. It's nation statism might be a less triggering word for a British or American it, audience. It, it, it could be. It's just it. it it, it, it the, the the problem with your know, people say to me why why do you use the word nationalism why can't you say use patriotism George Orwell for example uh, argued for that and the problem is since we are talking about semantics first let's be clear about the idea rather than than the terms the idea is a world of independent nations that's that's what we're trying to describe and you know people can use whatever term that they want to describe it. The reason that I use nationalism is because that's that is actually the traditional word for that ideology, and I'm I'm not that interested in uh, altering my vocabulary because of Hitler. I don't want to learn political theory from Hitler. the The word um, a patriotism it's a perfectly fine word, but patriotism means my love of my country. I'm a patriot. I'm an Eng English patriot, or I'm I'm an Israeli patriot. 
So patriotism is is the love of your country. But now we move into political theory. We're looking for a general principle. What 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 term do we use to describe the the idea that the world should consist is better off if it is governed as a world of independent nations? The term patriotism doesn't come close to capturing that, and nationalism simply does. It, it it's just an appropriate use of the term. So since I don't have another word, yeah. So I I, I use that word. Well, I actually first came across your work in 2016. You wrote an article for Mosaic just in the wake of the Brexit referendum results and it's very much going against the what was the loud, typical and rather cliched response to this, oh, this is a racist movement, whatever. And you went into the deep biblical roots of nationalism, which you then went into further detail in your books, The Virtue of Nationalism. And that for me was new information. And I found that very interesting. And actually, nationalism is an ancient theory. Yes. I wondered for listeners who hadn't heard that, the biblical roots of it, if you might give a light introduction. Okay, a light introduction. First of all, it's, it, it is Im- important to, to take everything you learn in university with a grain of salt. <laughs> Since World War II, there's been uh, th- there's a, a discipline called nationalism and ethnicity studies. You know, which which has a a few thousand members. These professors who are paid full time to think about the subject, and the founders of the discipline are almost all of them either Marxist anti-nationalists or liberal anti-nationalists. So it's a it, it it's a it, it's a discipline founded by anti-nationalists, and uh, and they go around telling people that look, nationalism was was invented at, uh, during the French Revolution. Uh, or maybe they push it back a little bit and say, okay, it was invented in, in, in Britain a hundred years earlier. But there is, at this point, even in the universities, there's a, uh, a small but high quality <laughs> group of scholars who've been looking to try to understand where does the idea of an independent nation, as opposed to a nation that's subservient to some empire, where does that come from? And you took it back to the 12 Hebrew tribes of... As, well, it, 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 it's, it, it's not me. I mean, there was a, uh, a, br- a brilliant scholar named uh, Adrian Hastings uh, who wrote a book already in the 1990s called The Construction of Nationhood. And Hastings, his thesis is, where does the idea of an independent nation appear? And he claims that throughout, throughout Western history and also outside of the West in, in, in Africa and Asia, he, he claims that the, the ideal of an independent nation appears where the the Bible and specifically the Old Testament, when it's translated into a local language, that that's where you where where you see it appear. And he takes uh, he he takes uh, medieval France and he takes Ethiopia. Looks at all sorts of examples. Now th- there there's pros and cons to this theory, but let let me give the light introduction that you asked me for. So when you read the the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, the background to the story is that the great political order. Uh, the great political orders in in the time of the Bible during the thousand years that are being described in in the Old Testament, the Egyptian Empire, the Babylonian Empire, the Assyrian Empire, the Persian Empire, these are very, very different civilizations. But what they have in common is that in every single one of them, the God sends uh, the king to conquer the four corners of the earth. And why? Uh, Because that's what's going to bring peace and prosperity. Notice, I mean, we usually think imperialism. Oh, it's just evil. No, actually, I mean, there's a there's a 
a strong argument behind all of these imperial ideologies. The, the argument is if we can eliminate the independence of all sorts of small peoples, we will eliminate war and will we'll allow agriculture and material prosperity to flourish in the absence of wars that come and destroy all the crops, bring famine, and kill millions of people. This, this sounds like a defense of supranationalist states like the EU. Well, you know, the funny, th the funny thing is that this, uh, this ancient ideology is still very much alive in the EU and the World Economic Forum and, and the World Trade Organization. But in the Bible, the, the remarkable thing about this is despite the fact that, that, that the imperialist ideology that you know, it has it has a positive motivation. It's not only about raping and pillaging, but despite that, the the Israelite prophets, the the prophets and scholars who wrote the Bible, they they disagree about many things, but they are united in their objection to human empire. They 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 construct this idea of Israel as an independent nation. They celebrate leaving in it, uh, uh, the departure from Egypt and the Israelites. The twelve tribes uniting under a single ruler. They they celebrate this as being. I, I don't want to say that it's an ultimate political principle, but it's a it's it's a central political principle. It's not it it's not and it's not just for the Israelites. The prophets start start to tell you about other nations and and uh, and how Israel should should suffer because of their loss of independence, and they envision a future in which um, in in which. The, these famous lines about uh, the, the 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 wolf lying down with uh, with the lamb. The, these fam these famous lines are metaphorical description of a world in which nations will stop trying to be imperial, and great nations will allow small nations to chart their own course. So this is one of the central political teachings of the Bible, and it is one that has inspired national independence movements throughout history, in, in, including especially in, uh, in England and in America. So that is an example of the Israeli people of a shared God who built a nation from that. But we're in Britain. This is a multi-ethnic state. There's multi-religious state, as in America, multi-ethnic, multi-religious. Can a nation be a nation without a founding binding religion underneath it look a good question i think uh, i i think the i think that the answer is is yes but it, uh, it it it's a little bit complicated i suggested first of all that in the book that the we should we should always look at nations as a collection of tribes and not, that's not only because that that's the way that the nation is described in scripture uh, but also in in reality, that there, there simply are no nations that that are internally homogenous. All nations are, are are diverse. So you know, if we go back to to just for a second to founding moments, the 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 first great attempt to establish an English nation is uh, is is with Alfred, and he's uniting diverse tribes, and. Uh, the same with the the Dutch and their struggle for independence. The same with uh, the the Americans and it, the great question in American in, in the American Revolutionary period. The great question is, in many ways, the same as the the biblical question is: Is it possible for these for these thirteen very very different colonies with very very different cultures, these thirteen states, is it possible to unite them as a single nation? 
if you accept that all nations are internally diverse to one degree or another, then I think that the 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 question of you know how do we do, how do we uh, unite a modern a modern nation which is uh, internally diverse? I think the question it's it's a very important question, but I think it becomes less. It comes. It, Many people seem to feel that it's just impossible that you know, as though we're facing for the first time in history the need to bind mul multiple ethnic groups or multiple religions in a single nation. I actually think that this is an eternal problem; that it's an unending problem throughout throughout recorded history, and the answer is going to be somewhat different in each case. All right, in 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 Israel, we the people. May not know in Israel there's a uh, there's a small people called called the Druze. The Druze are a uh, a Middle Eastern people. They have their own religion. Uh, it, it's not Judaism. It's not Islam. It, it's not Christianity. It's it, it's some kind of an interesting interesting fusion. So so it's a a people with its own identity. That we, in in Israel we have a few hundred thousand Druze. From the founding of the state of Israel, this uh, Druze people has. Uh, has been has been loyal to the the state, meaning they said, "Look, we we want to support Jewish independence. We're a small people. We're not going to try to you know claim that 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 we're equals in size or in strength, but we'll serve in the military." And this relationship, I don't want to say that it's that it is uh, you know without any kind of tension. All human relationships have tension, but it's been very successful. The, the Druze have reached very high high ranks in, in the Israeli military. Uh, they have, uh, when when Druze military units uh, have ceremonies, they fly the Druze flag next to the Israeli flag at the same level. And th this this kind of experience of a this kind of experience of, of of smaller peoples, I think you you can find it almost everywhere. You, the fact that someone is a minority doesn't mean. That, that they have to be excluded or abused or that they will be disloyal. Well, perhaps a problem is, or it could be better posed in that there is a majority, let's say in Israel, and there, have, there has been a majority in America, in Britain, but in Britain, we are now a minority Christian country. In America, it seems that from afar and from what I hear, the country is splitting in two because they have completely different conceptions of what the, the founding myth of the country, the founding story of the country, and they don't, they can't agree on what that is. There's a cleavage there. There's a, it's no longer about a majority that binds and then a, a, a tolerated minority. It seems that there's a, a splitting up. So I wondered there, what, that's a bigger problem, right? That's a, that's a different well, problem. For sure. Because we all know that, that, Civil wars are are a real possibility in every nation. Preventing civil war always involves, although people don't like to talk about this, but but avoiding civil war always involves having some kind of a dominant group that is strong enough to, uh, on the one hand, to say, "Look, our uh, our culture, our traditions, they're going to be the main traditions," and confident enough also to say, "You know, because we're." We're sufficiently strong to be to be confident that our traditions are the main traditions. Because of that, we can also bring in other groups. I, I wouldn't even say necessarily uh, uh, tolerating them. It could be just 
an alliance. We can go into alliance with other groups that will accept us as the leadership, but th they'll have an honored place with their own traditions that are that are different. The problem is exactly as you say that in the United States we've seen that be lost over the over the course of the the, the I, I don't I don't know. Let's say I, when I was growing up in the United States, uh, when I was in college, that those were the Reagan Thatcher years. No one in the United States had the slightest doubt that America was a nation. No, the, the question didn't even arise. You know, maybe some some radical professor would talk about it, but everyone knew that America was a, was a nation. Everybody knew that that historically America was was uh, uh, was was an Ang Anglo Protestant nation that had brought in a a a, a large Catholic uh, minority and also Jews and others. But the 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 historic character of the American nation was was not in doubt. The kind of questions that were asked was, how can we do justice to the black minority? It seems that they, 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 they've suffered injustice. What, what do we do about it? But the question of America being a nation was never a question. And I, I, from those days, I, I didn't live here, but I, I, I think much was the same about Britain. So much has changed. The, in part, it's because there's, uh, there's a very large proportion of the population that are immigrants but it but that's not really that's not really the problem because you know there there've been other periods in American history where 15% of the population has been foreign born just like today and the, the, there were tensions but you didn't feel like the country was about to split in two do you feel that way do you think it is about to split in two or do you well look i'm not i'm not going to make a a crystal ball are prediction are you concerned about the future of america uh, yes absolutely absolutely no no question at all the the degree of tension between a woke neo-Marxist left, which is now that that may be a small minority, but but the way human politics works is that a small minority, if it's if it's vocal enough and organized enough, it can dominate much larger, uh, much much larger political groupings. So I mean, we, we should we should never forget that that. You know the 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 Bolsheviks were never more than five percent of the population in the Soviet Union, and the and and the, the Nazis were never more than five percent in Germany. Is so, that right? That's right. I thought they they. I, I think won a lot they, more of the vote than that. Uh, we're not talking about the vote. We're talking oh. about party membership. But they won the pop. Did they win the popular vote? No, they won. No, they had. They they did. They yeah. the, in in Weimar that uh, Hitler won won the popular vote. That that's how he originally uh, became asked to be to to be chancellor. But but when you ask uh, why don't why why is there no resistance to uh, to Nazi Germany, the question that you're asking is ninety five percent of the population did not did not believe enough to become party members. They were not interested in becoming party members. So what was going on? And what's going on is that human populations. Are very very often governed by a a small, motivated, aggressive minority, which one way or another seizes control. And this is uh, what I'm describing is it's it is a dynamic that it it's not just a dynamic in you know in a coup d'état in dictatorships. This this is true in, in democratic societies also, that if you have a a, a small, highly motivated, uh, ideologically coherent group, then their concerns are heard much more loudly than the concerns of other people. And human beings naturally have a tendency to say, look, well, if they're so loud, then they must really care. 
Okay, so we're, we're looking in America... And you're more concerned with the the progressive, might, small, that small group on the on the left rather than the small group on the right. Is that a concern of yours? It sort of depends on who you're talking about. What's happening on the left is that that the the Democratic Party, which used to be a, a version of a liberal party, you know, and institutions like uh, uh, like the New York Times or Harvard University. Those were kind of the the ideological homes for the old liberalism. That old liberalism, look, I have all sorts of disagreements with it as a conservative. But as a conservative, for many years growing up, I had no problem reading the New York Times. I, I knew that I didn't agree with you know the slant that they put on many stories, but th- they had conservative writers. They, they thought conservatives were legitimate. And, uh, and you know, th- 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 there were all sorts of things that I could agree with. Uh, the old liberals on. Uh, on. Th- that's gone. It's disappeared. Uh, it, it, 2020 was a watershed year, uh, the year in which the New York Times began firing people for being old school liberals, the, the year in which uh, Princeton, I went to Princeton, Princeton University, erased Woodrow, Woodrow Wilson's uh, name from the, from the school of, uh, the, from the Woodrow Wilson School and from Wilson College. That was a year of cultural revolution, I think, in Britain as well and in, in other countries in Europe. And that cultural revolution brought to power a non-liberal ideology, which took over most of the, almost all of the, the liberal institutions, the media, the universities, Hollywood, government bureaucracy, even the military. And this shift from post-World War II liberalism to... You can call so it progressive. It's, it's almost like they're picking up some of the, uh, an inversion of the tribal makeup of of a society that you that you describe. And I think yours is, well, well, your defense of conservatism is one that it's families and then communities, perhaps that's local communities. But th- there's very much, the progressives would do it with identities, sexual identities, ethnic gr- uh, groups, even if they're not people who are actually in a functioning community together, they will use the words like the fallacy of the word community. They actually use it. It's, so I sort of see a mirror and actually I still get a bit of a, so I'm honest and perhaps this makes me a liberal. I get a little bit triggered by the exploring tribal. I particularly don't like tribal when it, it's uh, ethnic groups on the right. And, and, and so there's a, there's a kind of, there's a difficult side to yes. both things at play there. For sure. Look, both, you're right. There is a certain commonality between Marxist and conservative critiques of liberalism. And in in my book, I mean, I, I like when I'm teaching to try to get the students first to understand what's what the strengths of a, of a point of view is before I dive into saying what's, what's wrong with it. Because look, it, it, Marxism has to have, it has, you know, very often liberals and conservatives talk about Marxism like it's one big lie. There's reasons for that, but it, but it isn't really true. The because the 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 strength of the Marxist worldview is that it recognizes certain realities that liberalism denies. Like well, the, the as you said, the Marxist worldview is based first of all on identifying actual human groups. Uh, Marx calls them classes, but basically he's t- he's talking about human groups. The the fact that human beings uh, form cohesive groups and that those groups compete and struggle against one another and that sometimes they exploit and abuse one another. That's that's a reality that can take place in liberal society. And liberals 
can can really be blind to it because because they're always talking about the individual and they don't they're not aware that it's possible even in liberalism even in a democratic society for human beings to form groups and to abuse one another and so the the reason that marxists have such a a, a powerful hold that the, the that the attraction to marxism of its diff different kinds of marxism is so powerful for young people is because Marxist instructors, they say, look, the liberals are lying to you. L let me j just look around you. Do you see human beings being individual or do you see human beings forming into groups which abuse one another? And so the, the Marxist instructors, it, it, you know, it feels to the students like they're ripping the veil off of reality and you, you see the truth. Now, where do the Marxists go wrong? In my view, they go wrong because after correctly recognizing that there that, that there's always tension and struggle among competing groups in every society after they say that then they say well look the dominant group the strongest group is inevitably exploitative uh, it, th their assumption is that every group will always abuse and exploit every other group if they get the chance and i i think that's not true i think i think but there's that, an element of truth there's an, a, the, the, the tendency that you is, know, power corrupts and te there's a tendency absolutely towards that. they're they're there is such a tendency, but it doesn't. But I, what I don't accept is the the Marxist claim that the that's the only right that uh, that motivation a that inevitably every dominant group will exploit and oppress as much as it can, and b I don't accept that the only answer to that is to destroy the ruling class, and that I mean that's classical Marxism, and that part of it is very obvious in woke neo-marxism where they're not talking about economic classes right now now they the but but the ruling class that they have in their mind the you know the the uh, the straight white male and his fraternity and his patriarchy their goal is to destroy that as a political as a politically influential uh, element within society so the old marxism is expressed in this woke neo-marxism and then in the new cancel culture and progressivism with this goal that there's no possible relationship between a dominant group and the other groups other than oppressor oppressed. A conservative will say, come on, there's always a strongest group or strongest groups, but peace in society and justice are normally achieved through a kind of negotiation, through uh, wise rulers that understand that that uh, that uh, that the society will be stronger and more cohesive if uh, the different groups are loyal to one another. And how do you get to that loyalty? Well, you get to that loyalty by by trying to understand what the different groups not you know not every single thing they want is something that they can get, but the 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 goal of a just ruler of a just government is to try to understand what's important to what's most important to each group and see how a balance can be. Attain now. It's not always possible. Sometimes there just has to be struggle, you know, until one side wins. But the main goal of politics, in my view, and this is, you know, this is where I disagree with uh, radical rightist theorists, uh, Nazi theorists like like Carl Schmitt, who will tell you, no, politics is always about about who's your enemy and and annihilating your enemy. No, actually, most politics, most of the time, is about trying to navigate the competition among groups in such a way that everybody gets something of what they want. Everybody is honored to a certain degree at least. And from that to build a cohesive society, 
in which you know there are no groups that 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 feel that they've simply been eliminated from the game completely. In practical terms, you you say you're concerned about America. How can that unity return? Do you think? I I don't I don't know if it can. I, I mean I I can I can tell you what brings unity. What brings unity is honoring one another. Okay, which is something liberal political theory doesn't almost doesn't recognize, but it's central in the Bible and it's central in conservative thought. Honoring people, honor your wife, honor your father and your mother, honor your husband, honor your parents, honor your uh, honor the old people. That that's that's the basis of a. A, a, of a conservative view of society in which honoring means that you you treat someone you treat someone as a cause you you make them feel like like they're a cause an agent that they have influence that 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 that, that they're not ignored contemptuously but that somebody's paying attention to them and if something is of concern to them then it then then it becomes a concern to others that's interesting juxtapositions to the word tolerant, tolerate rather, which is the popular, that's the kind of conception we have is we must tolerate differences. But actually to honor is another step. We must honor each other. Well, yeah, but I, 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 think it's, I, I think it's more accurate simply in terms of human nature. When somebody's always telling you, I mean, just think about the relationship between a husband and wife. You want a, a straight path to destroying your, your relationship with your wife. So- Every time that you feel that she did something wrong, just tell her. J just be honest about it. You know, honesty is the best policy. So, so just you know, you, you, she said the wrong thing. Tell her, look, you know, you you just said the wrong thing. How could you have said that? If you want your your marriage to survive more than a few years, the heart of it is finding the things that you can say that make her feel like she's important. So, if that's a metaphor for yeah. America. Yeah. America is a country yeah. on the edge of divorce. How do each side honor each other? Well, look, I, I I can tell you how it's done because I'm old enough so that I I remember when it was normal. When it was normal, you know, you can you can still just get the videos of Reagan Mondale or Reagan Carter debates, or go back to Kennedy versus um, Nixon in the 1960s. Just watch the old debates and 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 look at the way they talk to one another. Probably they think there would be a, a a catastrophe if the other one won, and and they might even hate each other. But look at the way they talk. The entire posture is, look, my esteemed colleague from the other side. You know, the assumption is inherited from uh, the UK. Obviously, the assumption is that the, the opposition is loyal. The assumption is, look, our policies are, are better. But if you know, if uh, if my colleague wins the election. So of course we're going to support him. We're going to collaborate in trying to do the best we can in this country. We'll, we, you know, we'll, we'll we'll disagree on on some things, but on the important things, we're going to work together. That's the assumption. There's this constant handing over of gestures of uh, respect and even affection and good humor, and and that creates a very real bond of mutual loyalty when both sides are doing that, and. You know, in general, I would say in life, when you feel that you're in competition with somebody, instead of, you know, going, going the, uh, the, the route of, um, let me see how much I can abuse him and, have, and express contempt for him or her in public, why not just try actually complimenting them where they deserve it. Try 
indicating where you agree, supporting them where you think that they actually made it, even if you don't agree. So you know that that, that actually is very well said and, and treat it as such. Just try it a few times, see what happens, see what happens. Most people, when they when when they feel that they've been compl- you know, of course, some people will say, "Oh, what you, what a fool he is that he's complimenting me." But most people still, if you take them seriously and and in a in a clear way treat them as though their their ideas are 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 worth 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 something, they respond in in a positive way. You f- you can feel them coming closer together, and look, I, there's certainly a point beyond which. You can't you can't make that repair, and 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 then you have civil war. But I I don't think that we're very good at predicting the future. I don't think human beings are good at knowing what's about to happen. So we can see in America the 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 terrible bitter pulling apart, which reminds us of the eve of the American Civil War. But what we don't know is if we do the right thing, if we do what we ought to do, whether we might not be able to turn it around, whether God might not help us a little bit if we make one last effort to hold it all together. So I recently interviewed Francis Fukuyama, whose famous political theory is that in 1989, he said this is the end of the history and that liberal democracy is the height of political thought. And yet it seems that in many parts of Europe, particularly and over the last five, six years, uh, well, even back to 2016, as we've discussed, actually people are voting against liberal democracy. In your book, uh, Conservatism, A Rediscovery, you, there's almost a, I, I took it as a revisionist history that actually the, the Second World War, the 20th century, wasn't the victory of liberalism as much as it was the victory of Christ, uh, liberal democracy as much as it was Christian democracy. When you see, let's say, Hungary or Italy and certain religious conservative movements growing it. Does that give you, is that the sort of Christian democracy you're sort of imagining? Is that, do you think that they're, they're, it's it's the Christian democracy of, of old? Is that a conservatism you're happy to see yes. rising? Yes. I don't believe that there is any force strong enough to, def- to defeat woke neo-Marxism. You don't believe there is any force strong enough? Except political Christianity. Now I, I'm an Orthodox Jew. I have plenty of issues with with Christianity, both in theory and in practice. But when I look at this cultural revolution that we're going through, and and the way that every couple of years pa- that that pass brings us to an even more aggressive imposition of revolutionary ideas. When I when I say revolution, I mean that in the negative sense, tearing apart everything that has been inherited that was any good, and I'm not claiming everything we inherit is good, but tearing apart f- first, you know, they began in the 1960s, uh, first with with uh, God and scripture, and then from there to the destruction of the idea of nation and family, and finally they've gotten to the the, the elimination of the ideas of man and woman, and it, look, it, there, there is no end to this. This aggressive critique of every inherited idea it will destroy us. I mean, it, it, it will actually it will actually reduce the countries that uh, the Western countries first first to misery and then to weakness and then to dictatorship. Well, this is the sort of point I was trying to yeah get at earlier is that it, without a, an underlying 
majority religion to bind yes. a, a country, a nation? Can there really be a nation? But so just on political Christianity, what is political Christianity? Is that theocracy? Is that what, what's the, how would you define those? How would you delineate those two things? Look, every society has a majority framework. Okay. And as, as look, as a, as a Jew, um, I, I'm, you know, one of these groups that kind of, you know, doesn't fully fit into the, uh, into the dominant, uh, the old dominant ideology or worldview in America or in Britain. But those, those dominant ideologies, the old British Christian synthesis, the old American Christian synthesis, they were compared to historically to what, what we've known, they, they were very generous to Jews and to all sorts of other minorities. And sometimes not so generous, but yeah, sure. No, of course. You know, look, it would be easy for me to uh, go into the, the, you know, listing the history of, of things that I find objectionable about the history of Britain. But what on earth is the point of this? Because if, if, if you're just trying to say, I don't care what happens next, let's just destroy the whole thing. So go right ahead. Just name everything that was ever wrong with it. But if you're like me and you say, usually when you tear the whole thing down, what comes afterwards is much, much worse. Okay. And how many, how many, how many examples of, of that do we need? I mean, the whole communist and Nazi and fascist project of the 20th century was uproot and destroy whatever has come and we'll just invent something. We'll use, you know, science or, or, or some new philosophy in order to invent everything from scratch. What good ever comes of that? Nothing. No good comes out of those revolutions. If you want good, you take, if you actually want good, a conservative will, will, will say you, you want to improve things. So take the existing inherited order. Find, don't, don't tell me all about how it can be redesigned. Find the one thing that is most troublesome from a perspective of justice and let's repair that and see how that goes. That, that's a conservative approach. All conservatives will agree that, that, that what you inherit is not perfect and that repairs are necessary. They all agree. The question is, are we going to focus on trying to fix one thing or do we listen to these theorists about how, yes, I can simply revise all of civilization. So my answer is no, don't do it. Don't go with the revolution. I'll go, go back to this, to the, the question of the religious underpinnings of the old order, okay, both in Britain and in America and, and throughout Europe in different, in different ways, the order was based on a religious framework. It was based on a, especially in, in the UK and in America, it was based on a biblical framework that was very, very strong on the Old Testament. And by the way, the, 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 the way that Brits and Americans come to the idea that, oh, let's give the Jew Jews a homeland in Israel. The, the way that they become supporters of this is through the Bible. Okay, so th there's a not just a, a love of national independence, a, uh, a structure of what morality looks like, of what a, uh, a majority relationship to higher things looks like. And that is something that, for all our criticisms of it, we know it works. Compare that to the cultural revolution that's coming. There's no evidence that it works. There's not. They don't even claim it's going to work. They only claim that they're achieving justice by destroying. So, where do we have to go? We're, well, we don't have a lot of choices here. And I'm speaking. I understand that 
uh, Britain is uh, is a country, as you said, in which in which Christianity really is a minority. But I think that those of you who, uh, like me, are not Christians, I think need to ask themselves because this is this is the choice that we're we're not going back to the old liberalism. The old liberalism is 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 was unable to defend itself against woke neo-Marxism. It's unable to. It's not strong enough to do it. In the end, if you want to back an order that is going to be strong enough, then you're going to have to support some kind of an accommodation with the old Christian framework that gave stability to life. Now, you said, does that mean a theocracy? No, of course it doesn't. Nobody's interested in having a group of priests or ministers or rabbis replace the government of, of any existing country and rule it. No one. I, I literally don't know anyone, Christian, Jewish, or any other, you know, a, any other religion in a Western country is looking to do that. But the liberal theory of separation of church and state, that's an American theory. It's strange to impose it in, in Britain where there's, you know, a cross on the flag and an established church. But I've I've come to understand that that the American liberal uh, theory of separation of church and state that it's become very powerful. It's it's become very intuitive e- even here in the UK. I well, think in America, what's into, uh, it sort of seems to get ignored is that even though there is a separation, philosophically the foundational political texts are do have religious presuppositions. So they're, they're referencing God, a creator, and so actually even though. The political institutions are separated from the from the church at the foundation. It is founded on a religious worldview. Well, that's true, but I, I I would take take it further. The principle of separation of church and state enters American constitutional law in 1947, after World War II. You know, so we we all kind of live in this optical illusion in which everyone somehow thinks that America had separation of church and state since the founding. And there's there's zero truth to it. There's no truth to it at all. The, 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 the First Amendment, the purpose of the First Amendment was to allow the, the, the church establishments and the, the, the different kinds of religions in the different states to be uh, independent and not to be interfered with by the Central American government. It's, it's a little bit like the, the Anglican Church being the official church in England, while the Scottish Church, which, you know, which is Presbyterian, is an entirely different thing, it, it is the official church in Scotland. It's a little bit like that. The Americans had, in 1776, they had official church establishments in several of, 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 of the states, and all the other states, which did not have an official church establishment, all of the other states had state constitutions which explicitly talked about uh, about elements of the Christian religion. We, uh, many of them had uh, pr- pr- provision, provisions for state-supported, state-supported religion. It could be pluralist. Many of them had uh, tests for office that were religious. America was a Christian nation, and it was recognized as a Christian nation by law or Christian people by the American Supreme Court until the 1930s. And so what, what we're dealing with as part of the post-war liberal experiment is let's see what happens if you take uh, God and Bible out of all of the schools in the country by force. You know, all, m- Most of the country has this or that kind of relationship with Christianity. Uh, in, the, the, in 1948, the particular first step that the Supreme Court took in the United States was that in 1948, in the McCulloch case, Chicago schools... Here's here's what the Chicago schools were doing. 
they were allowing a Catholic priest, a Protestant minister, and a rabbi to enter the school for certain times during the week and to offer instruction in the different religions and, and students and their parents could choose which which they would go to. And, and the, they also allowed students to not go if they, you know, if, if there were a good faith uh, um, dissent. That is what was ruled unconstitutional by the U.S. Supreme Court in 1948, is this marvelously pluralist, generous attempt to allow students to learn something about religion. When that became unconstitutional, and then a few years later, Bible was banned. So that was the was domino, that was the first domino. Yes, and yeah. and, and look, it, this is an amazing thing that we're watching. It's it's literally sixty years, it, two generations from the time that Americans say, okay, we're going to eliminate just eliminate God and Scripture from from the schools. We'll limit it to you know an hour a week on Sunday, from that moment until the you know these mind-numbing debates about is this one a woman or is that one a woman? It's sixty years, and you 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 can't tell me that there's that there's no no causal relationship because the because it's been proceeding in a in 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 a straight vector for sixty years. When G.K. Chesterton makes me think of Chesterton, he said, when people no longer believe in God, they don't believe in nothing; they believe in anything, and that seems to be the sort of trajectory you're describing. Well, you'll you'll see that that uh, as as the months are passing, woke neo Marxism takes on the trappings more and more of of an organized religion, and it will have its gods and it will have its liturgy. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's going to be pagan; it's not going to be Christian. I, I just think people need to make a choice. I'm not telling people what to believe. I'm telling you that that if you want to save your country, but also if you if you want to be able to build a stable family, if you want to be able to save yourself, I don't mean in the Christian sense, I mean in the in the personal worldly sense, if you want to be able to save yourself, you have to join communities that are resisting this. It, it, it's the only way to have a decent life. One thing I wanted to ask you, which is maybe a little bit of a, a left turn here, is about, well, you mentioned immigration earlier in this conversation, right at the beginning of this conversation. And in Britain, we are due or it's expected that we'll have a million net migrants into the UK this year, which is double last year. And pre-Brexit, I think it was never more than 330,000 at its peak. A conservative argument in favor of that is that we have a population crisis in that we're heading into population decline. And economically, it's good to have immigrants to fill that gap for the for the economic progress of the of the country to sustain that aging population and to make sure that there is a critical mass of working people to keep the the state together are you in favor of that argument or against the argument well i'm i'm against the argument but i i also want to try to uh, push it out of the conservative zone. I think it's a liberal argument, and ar it's a liberal argument because it refuses to acknowledge that there is such a thing. There is such a thing as an English nation, and it it has a historic character. It has a certain culture. Of course, it's possible to absorb uh, immigrants so long as the immigrants are highly motivated to become English, to adopt English culture. And so long as the numbers are small enough so that, you know, so that England can actually bring them in in a successful way. Okay. So with the, with the birthing 
crisis, assuming you agree with me that there's a population crisis. Maybe I shouldn't assume. No, no, I, 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 I agree with you. I just, I just think. But so what's, what's, how do we deal with that then? There is, look, there, there's no alternative for a nation, a people that wants a future. There's no alternative to having children. And the assumption that foreign adults can replace the the children raised in English households, it, 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 it's an absurd assumption. It, I mean, I'm not saying that the, that the economic measure doesn't have some kind of value and truth to it. The problem is, it's as is often the case with liberalism, it's this little partial truth. The broader truth is that a Britain that is not having children has no future and these islands will end up being they'll, they'll they'll end up being taken over by some other country at some point if you want to have a future you can't avoid the basic responsibility of uh, of human beings to any society that they love which is to bring children into that society and to raise them with its value and worldview but something has happened in which people are not having children. People yes. can't afford it or they don't want it. They, they've lost that appetite for various reasons. What, what is the conservative response to that? Is, is it for government to support families? How, how, do we, how do we solve that? Look, for sure, government has a role. Okay, And I, 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 don't, I don't think that... The, government can solve it by itself because uh, so social change it it has to be a, a cooperation between uh, government and uh, the church or the intellectuals uh, the universities the, so, some kind of spiritual thinking people who are not necessarily government at all who are l leading the public but just to answer your question about government government certainly has to make sure that first of all uh, that um, financially, that the incentive structure is towards getting married, staying married, and uh, and having as many as as many children as possible. That's the that is the the way the incentive structure should be built. But human beings are not primarily economic. Lots of people in history have had many many children when they were poor, and also during the the after the industrial revolution, not only in uh, on farms. The principal thing that government and the king and the, the heads of the church, their principal responsibility is to give honor to marriage, to, tr to traditional classical marriage, to, to child raising. Also, by the way, to serving in the military. I mean, the, the, these are things that if the prominent and the influential people, the leadership of the country, if they are not constantly giving or honor to these things then people will then then you can't expect the society you know to revolt against the entire the entire elite and the entire leadership and say no 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 we're going to have a different set of values that that might happen but i think i think people simply underestimate the the uh, the, the influence that i mean just just think about how donald trump reshaped the way that not just in America that you know tens of millions of people think in America and in many other countries, or the the, the way that Barack Obama did, or, or 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 Bill Clinton or Ronald Reagan, Thatcher, 
people are shaped by their leaders to a, a degree that we just don't want to admit. And our leaders are not there. They're scared. They're scared to say conservative things. And so they're, they're scared to say something like getting, getting married young is, is better than putting it off. Having three or four children is better than having no children or one child. Serving the military is better. Uh, staying married is better than getting divorced. Political leaders are scared to say these utterly simple things. And so, look, all of us have a role. You want the political leaders to start doing something? Well, well, you should start doing it. You, you and me, we, we mm. you know, we, we we talk to people. We we have to say these things. If we don't say these things, then what what do you expect? Well, actually, one of the successes I think of your National Conservative Conference, whether or not I was satisfied with the answers then deliberated and discussed, was that your speakers identified some of the great problems at the time and and and. The one I just asked there about the birth gap uh, was, or the, sorry, the, the the population problem. Louise Perry spoke about that. Ed West, Mary Harrington, and there's a big bunch of topics which the mainstream parties are not discussing, which you are dealing with. And I think that 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 was impressive or or important, really. And maybe that's the key to some of the success, maybe unexpected success of the of the the, the NatCon. Conference. What do you think, apart from that, are the other key issues, apart from the, the population decline, that that we need to think about or start putting our minds towards, for you know, in the political realm? Well, the the big the biggest issues, first first national independence, Brexit isn't isn't actually done. I mean, the, the, there the, there is still a a resistance to allowing parliamentary democracy in Britain to be independent of all sorts of decisions being made by all sorts of bodies in other places. So f first of all, national independence, which is simply the, the, uh, the ability of Britain to, of the British to make their own decisions and implement them. So that's, that's bedrock. That, that's number one. And then I would say immigration, family and, and, uh, and children and the great Cultural revolution, the 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 woke neo Marxists that must be with right with the woke neo Marxists who who whose aim is to take over the schools and use the schools to convince everyone that the old family is a, is an instrument of uh, of white male oppression and needs to be destroyed. Yeah. So my last question: National conservatism. We've dealt with conservatism and nationalism. What's different about national conservatism? Is it a common? Is it an accumulation of all of those ideas in one? And what's the future of the national conservatism? Okay, well, look, national conservatism isn't. When we talk about conservatism and liberalism and Marxism, we're talking about we're in the realm of you know political theories, and national conservatism is not. It it it's it's not a political theory. It's the it's the name of a movement that appears at a certain a certain moment in history when the word conservative has been hijacked to many people have said this before me what how much of a difference is there between uh be between Blair and Cameron uh, how, how much of a difference is there be be between between uh, Bill Clinton and George Bush minor because both of them are support both sides are part of a game in which the goal is to create George H W Bush's new world order where the fall of the Berlin Wall signals this, you mentioned Fukuyama, this moment of the end of history where we're going to wrap the entire globe 
in a single rule of liberal law, and uh, anybody who's resisting will use soft power or will just invade them and, 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 and make them. And so national conservatism is somewhat, it's somewhat of a redundant term because the, the, the nation is always important to all conservatives. But, but it, it's appropriate at this moment to use it as, as, a, as a slogan, as a symbol, because it makes it clear we're not talking about the, old, the, the, the so-called conservatives who are trying to create one world liberal order. We want independence for our nation. We want to restore beneficial national traditions, certainly at the level of the family, but prob probably at other levels as well. And this is, you know, it's interesting that uh, I, I said conservatism is different in, in every country, but the, the, the objection to liberal internationalism, to, to the new world order, that objection is very similar in, you know, all sorts of countries. So you, you have Catholic majority countries and post-Christian countries, and Israel is a Jewish state, and India is a Hindu state, and, and the, the effort to resist the imposition of this globalist fantasy, which will be a globalist nightmare, uh, you know, that opposition actually, it, it creates an interesting alliance of different, different peoples in different nations. And it's one of, the, one of the great pleasures of these national conservatism conferences has been uh, meeting people from other nations. And I'll tell you that the, usually they're surprised when they meet you because they've been reading in their own local liberal press, like what a monster you are. And then, then, then they meet and they say, I thought you were a monster, but you, you, you're just like me. We're normal. And, <laughs> and so it's, uh, it's fun and it's good and it's gaining strength. And what, what a pleasure to, um, to have national conservatism appear in, in, in Britain, you know, as I, I said in the conference. Britain is the linchpin. It's it's the historic home for um, for much of what we value in Western civilization. The the Brits have got to fight. We we're we're all cheering for you, and and it's it's deeply meaningful, not just for you, but for the rest of us. Well, Dr. Hazoni, uh, I'm sure viewers and listeners will agree you're absolutely the uh, furthest thing away from a monster that was a wonderful <laughs> conversation and i enjoyed reading your books very much and, and learning about conservatism uh, through your work so thank you and thank you for taking the time to speak with me today sure likewise thank you very much mm -hmm.